black and blue. What is it like to be black and a police officer? I'm your host, Darla Montgomery. Today, we continue our discussion of the African-American experience in law enforcement. We ask our panel of veterans, what is it like to transition from being a cop to a civilian? And we talk about the role of mental health in modern policing. More stunning stories now on 10 Talks Acadiana. 10 Talks Acadiana, the podcast powered by KLFY.com. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for 10 Talks Acadiana News 10's podcast. We are in part two of Black and Blue. It was a podcast we brought to you several weeks ago. We are joined by a very distinguished group of gentlemen once again. They are all retired law enforcement officers here to tell us about being black and blue, what it is to be a black officer in Acadiana. Uh, so the last time, gentlemen, we were all together, uh, we spoke about the history of law enforcement in Acadiana. You guys told us things and a lot of folks responded. They had no idea that these types of things happened where officers were only allowed to patrol in black communities, where officers weren't allowed to carry weapons and uh, the disparities in um, promotions and even in the hiring process and, and what you guys faced. And, and the community, I want you to know, was very grateful that you guys were so candid, honest, and, and walked them through that process. So we're continuing that conversation today and now we're gonna take you more to present day. Uh, talking about being black and blue as a civilian, one of the most interesting points you gentlemen brought up was the different <laughs> colors, if you will, that you have to be. You're black men, you wear blue, and sometimes you're both, sometimes you're one or the other, and sometimes you're all of the above. Um, and, and maybe perhaps not even a color. That was poignant because not a color means that you weren't being seen and heard. And, and we heard you in that podcast last week. Let's uh, go ahead and introduce, let you guys introduce yourselves really quickly. Uh, we'll start with you, Andres. I'm Andres Landor, Lafayette, Louisiana. I'm a retired with Lafayette PD after 21 years. I'm Terry Landry. I retired Louisiana State Police uh, 27 years. I'm Alex Montgomery, retired Lafayette Parish Sheriff's Office 34 plus years. Gob Williams, retired Lafayette PD 20 years. Anthony Navarre, retired from the Lafayette PD, retired from the, was employed at Southern University as the chief and retired from the state as Waste and Standard Police Chief. All right, so as you can see, quite a bit of experience uh, that we're gonna share with you today. Let's start with you, Andres. We are talking about being black and blue, this time as a civilian. What has that been like for you? Have you been stopped? I mean, pretty much I would think most people uh, can say that they've been stopped at one point or another by an officer. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, I can tell you that um, if you have a son, I, which I have a son, and it's, it's a unique situation because we all have, our, have these talks with our sons about encounters with the police, some, some of the things that they should do and shouldn't do. And when, his, when your father is a cop, you especially want to have that, that conversation with him because you don't want him to confuse your demeanor with the policeman, with the officer that he's going to come in contact with. Uh, I can remember one time going to Mississippi, I was bringing my son to Ole Miss, and um, I passed up a unit and I complimented it, 
And I said how nice it was. That's stuff that police do. We compliment units and stuff. <laughs> and my son looked at it, and it was just me and him. I was in the right lane, had been in the right lane. And I saw him in my rearview mirror. He was coming real quick. And um, I said, he got somebody. And what he actually did was he pulled on the side of me, and he started coasting. And my son, who was in high school, about to visit Ole Miss, he turned and he said, Dad, what is he doing? And I said, he's profiling. Mm-hmm. And he said, what you mean? I said, he's looking to see who and what's driving this vehicle. And after I said that, he got behind me. Make a long story short, he pulled me over. And I asked him why did he pull me over. And he said, you didn't signal your, your turn when you switched lanes. And I said, but I'm in the same lane that I was in when I complimented your unit about a couple of miles back. And he immediately said, well, you swerved. So I said, okay, I know what kind of officer you are. You're a highway and addiction officer, a drug officer, and I'm the same thing. And he was like, oh, really? And he asked for my card. Pulled out my commission card, gave it to him. He asked me how long I'd been a police officer. I told him about 18 years. Um, He looked at it, he went to the back. Two more units pulled up. After about 10 minutes, my phone rang. I answered my phone, it was my dispatchers. Now I'm in Mississippi. My dispatchers called, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. How you know I'm stopped? They called to verify that you really was a police officer. Okay, wow. so he comes back to the unit afterwards, and he he he's cutting me loose. And I stopped him, and I said, about seven months ago, you went to a a, a class, and it was called Highway and Addiction. And I said, the first class was taught by a Hispanic guy out of California, and it was called Why You Shouldn't Profile. And he looked at me, and he said, How the hell you know that? And I said, I was your classmate for a week. I sat on the side of you for a week. So at that point, I turned to my son and I said, this is the real world. This is what I'm talking about. I gave him a card with a, with a fingerprint, of, of a name on it, everything. And he still had to call my department to validate that I really was a cop on a fictitious stop on something that I never, I never switched lanes. And of course, how you dispute a swerve. I mean, mm-hmm. how you dispute that. So that was an eye opener for my, for my son. And he saw that even though you're a black cop, you still black on the traffic stop. Wow. Terry? <laughs> well, I don't know if I can have <laughs> those kind of encounters. Um, well, I, I'm a realist and I understand. And since I've retired, uh, I use extreme caution. Uh, I, I, I'm very conscious of where I am, how I drive, and what I do because uh, I know I can have one of those experiences as, uh, as, as Mr. Landor had uh, and I, I, I try to avoid uh, that type of a situation. Now I have been stopped mm-hmm. um, and I've been stopped by the agency that I work for and having been the head of that agency there are people out there that uh, I guess I, I'll put it this way, like to have a trophy and and we like to say, well, you know, I, I stopped the police <coughs> superintendent, and wow. and and I did this, and I, I I've never had a, a a negative encounter, but I immediately take the the passive position and humble myself, and and not get into a, a verbal exchange about what the stop was about, uh, knowing full well that if I get into that confrontation sometimes, it can be, um, it, it could end up bad on, on both of our parts. So I, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that I was a police officer, but I, told my, I tell my sons, just like Landor, 
you can't win on the side of the road. Right. You can't win that argument. Um, if if an officer is unprofessional, um, listen, uh, do what you have to do, um, be compliant, and and then get on your way, and then we can resolve it after that. There's there's a method to bad behaviors, and and if people do what they're supposed to do, which is not just complain verbally, but submit it to writing. Mm -hmm. And once you submit those complaints to writing, it follows that guy for the rest of his career. So um, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, I was a police officer, and 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 there there are people out there that behavior is just not bad, not good. So I would say that some people would say that you're fortunate that, that your uh, experiences have not been negative because even through compliance um, on the part of the civilian we've seen where things still go south um, and I'm gonna move on to Alex because he I know of an experience that we both shared we were together he's gonna get to tell the story however um, Alex go ahead and tell us tell us about that experience. Are you talking about the story the um, incident in uh Jasper, Alabama, mm -hmm. where we were traveling on the interstate, going from um, Birmingham to Jasper, and exited the interstate onto a regular road. Speed limit on the interstate was 65, and it was a continuing road, basically exit, and it, we exited off, and within half a mile, I'm pulled over by a state trooper from uh, Alabama, and he said, you're speeding. I said, well, I came off the interstate, it was 65. I don't know what the speed here because I haven't encountered a speed sign yet. So he said, uh, speed limit is 55 here. And before we got to speaking, when we pulled over, I pulled over, kind of slanted my vehicle like I normally do my unit, uh, could still see the license plate, and we're sitting in the car for some time. And he's behind us, and I don't know if he wants us to get out the car, or he's gonna come to the car, I don't know. So we're waiting for some time, so I opened the door, and he immediately yells in the uh, PA system, close the door and get back in the car. So I get back in the car. Well, he walks up to the passenger side from a distance and orders me out the car. What are you doing? I said, I'm, I don't know what, I'm, what you want me to do. I said, we sat here for a while. You didn't give an order to uh, cut the car off. You didn't give us an order to step out the car. You didn't give us an order to stay in the car. I don't know what you're doing. And I presented my driver's license, my commission card, and my badge. I said, I'm a law enforcement officer out of Louisiana, and basically in Louisiana, we don't normally approach cars. We try to get the people out of the car. Well, we don't do that here in Alabama. And he started to rag on in a way to entice me to argue with him. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a former negotiator, so I know how to talk to people, how to de-escalate them. And basically, I wasn't going to give him the, the pleasure of turning, turning it up. You, you left a part out. I didn't want to interrupt you, but just a short break. Uh, so when we were sitting there waiting, the minutes seemed like hours, and mm -hmm. I was getting afraid. And when he did yell at Alex to uh, get back in the car, um, I, my, my fear went from here to here. Yeah. And uh, I was eating a banana. I have no idea where that banana is to this day, to be honest with you, <laughs> I threw it out the window, because there was a point when he did get Alex out of the car, and I was afraid, and so I opened my door as well, and he yelled explicatives and told me to get my you know what back in the car Jesus Christ okay pick it up yeah, so immediately he said we're gonna go to my car and I'm gonna run everything so he's in the car I'm sitting in the passenger seat and he's running it and he's demeanoring the way Louisiana does traffic stops uh, do you know how, 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 how stupid that is to, for 
them to approach your unit or them to be outside the car versus them inside of a car and you approach it and can see danger. And I left it alone. And he said, basically, I'm going to give you a written warning. I said, well, I'll take the warning. But I have not seen a speed limit sign to indicate that the, the speed has changed. Speed limit sign was probably another four or five blocks up the road. Mm -hmm. So I never had a chance to even see the new speed. And I got back home. And when I got back home, I knew a lieutenant from Alabama State Police who handled uh, Troy State University all the time. So I called him up and I said, look, I'd like to file a complaint. Exactly what you're talking about, Terry. Put it on paper. I filed a complaint with Alabama uh, State Police and basically I did my research. And the research that I did indicated that the type of stops that they're doing where they approach a vehicle has a higher rate of officers being shot or hurt versus what we do here in Louisiana. Just to, end the, you know, just to show him that he's not as smart as he thinks he was. Mm -hmm. uh, the way he's doing it is antiquated. The way he's doing it is a lion walking in, you walking into a lion's den. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the lieutenant from Alabama, when he finally came to UL, when they played UL, he said he, he was uh, taken care of, he was suspended. Um, mm -hmm. The way he talked to you in the car, because the, the in-car camera caught the entire conversation. He said that was, that was very unprofessional. And he said the amount of time you sat on the side of the road waiting for a command from him was very unprofessional. You didn't know what to do. We didn't know what he was doing either. Mm -hmm. you know, but what he was doing at the time was running the plate, running the drivers of the registered owner. And he's leaving out the dramatics. Um, <laughs> so I have to tell you, so the officer, when Alex mentioned how his, his, he was es escalating things, he was yelling. Yes. There was a lot of yelling. My husband's standing on the side of the road in Alabama with a white officer, my husband is black, and we're in a Benz. So he did ask us, well, where'd you get this car? <laughs> yeah, no. You know, well, what does that have to do with anything? How, right, exactly. And, and so, and that's when I opened the door because I, I, I just got afraid, I, I didn't know. And that's when he yelled for me to get back in the car. Uh, it, so what Alex is, is, is uh, saying, Alex is talking as calm as he is right now. I was freaking out, mm -hmm. but he kept the situation he took control and the officer was unaware that that's what he was doing. So when we came back home, of course, I thank God because that could have gone so many different ways. And we were lucky because it was just the three of us on that lonely road. We never saw a vehicle passing. Well, so it was very there, funny. There are instances all over America where uh, black officers have been killed by white officers uh, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. miss a bad shooting or Mm -hmm. taking them for just a typical guy I mean, there's, there are instances all over America and that's one of the reasons I don't want to be a statistic right. and that's why I take the precaution I take mm -hmm. if a guy doesn't ask me mm -hmm. I won't tell him I'm a retired police officer he didn't mean I, I, I don't I don't go there with him because mm -hmm. I, I try to minimize the contact get our business mm -hmm. together and I go do what I got to do you do what you got to do I never had that problem you never? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to move on to Mr. Williams, sir. Yeah, what do you have to say about this issue? Having to repeat everything, yeah, yeah. I've experienced all the same thing these guys have experienced. The one thing I learned is that uh, even as a retired police officer, when, when you see them lights and you hear them sirens, mm -hmm. your heart start beating fast, and then you start to get confused. Mm -hmm. The most important thing you do is remain calm if you can. As calm as you can, remain calm and listen for this man's voice. 
Whatever he tells you to do, my advice to you is to do it. Just if he tell you to get down on the get down on the ground, you can have your five hundred dollar suit on. Get down on the ground because if you disagree with him, you, you're looking for a problem. Okay, so my experience with these officers is, and I'm amazed as the way when they first start speaking to me compared to once they find out who I am, it changes. It, it changes. changes. Yeah. But then my thing is, if if you speak to me the way you speak to them other people, I can understand why the people, the, the, the young guys get upset, mm -hmm. you know, uh, be because of my military training and the, my, my police training, I am, I'm calm in the stone. So, uh, I've had some drastic experience. I mean, you know, but my advice to these young guys in the community, when you stop by a law enforcement officer, follow their orders. You cannot fight them because they have all the weapons in the world. Yeah, they no, have no. all the tools to take care of you. So therefore, if you got a complaint, you go down to the police department and you file your complaint. Put it in writing, like Terry said. You know, because you can't beat these guys in the street. They got mace, they got gun, they got nightsticks. So how can you win? Or, you know, I don't care what, what kind of uh, uh, instructor you are, what, how good you are with your fist, you can't win. So the best thing is to comply. Live to fight them another day. Live. Mr. Navarre? Live, that's mm -hmm. what you should say, not mm -hmm. to fight them. Live. You know, I've had all the experiences that you had, but I had them in different stages. When I first got on the police department, the first time I was stopped was in New Iberia by, by a deputy in New Iberia who told me, I don't give a flipping flying finger, you know, who you think you are? That was the first one. The, and then after I got some recognition on television, you know, mm -hmm. in the area, people started to recognize me. And then officers would kind of draw back. And I think, you know, I keep asking myself, why is this? So then I get stopped in Arkansas. Okay, they harassed my wife. But when I identified myself and said what my name was, they backed off. Can I can I just yeah, say yeah. one thing yeah. uh, mm -hmm. while we while we're on this this mm -hmm. contact? I, I listened to Ladner, I listened to Alex, and I can understand police are supposed to be problem solvers, not create problems. Yeah. And you know, you and I you can stop me in the street and just me. And I, I may be a little more tolerant. Mm -hmm. When I got my wife sitting next to me, I got my son sitting next to me, and you demean me and you talk to me like I'm a child. That's right. That's where the escalation takes place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's where the person that's not trained to de-escalate, start talking back and, and resist it. A man wants to be a man in front of his family. I know I do, and I think all of us do. Mm -hmm. So police officers, uh, training is so important. But it's so critical. And you see, that's the point of this, this topic, is why does it have to change? Why can't the initial approach be what like Terry saying, like Landor said, out to respect someone. Right. Why does it have to start at 10? It's already escalated. Let's talk about uh, mental health and domestic calls um, and how important uh, training. And then this also, you know, I'm going to go ahead and tie in just interacting with the public in general since we're headed down that direction. Um, so you guys are all officers and we all just talked about your experiences of being stopped. Can you imagine, of course you can, what it's like for just the general population because you've got a fear factor 
you, so you're panicking, you have a fear factor, and, and exactly what you were talking about, Gob. So let's, let's talk about this mental health issue and, do, and making these domestic calls. What, how important and what role does training play in that? You want to start? I, I think it, it plays uh, a, a critical role. Uh, you know, the Louisiana, we talked about it the last time, the post-certification Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement set the standard for training, and that's the basic. That's, I mean, that's the basic criteria. People go to these agencies, and, and if the agency is not progressive and getting their people uh, trained up for the, the, the issues that they face. Uh, you know, there are some crimes that's been around since, uh, since uh, Napoleon, but there are some crimes that have evolved that, that the police have to evolve with it, trends, if you would. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes from one type of narcotics to another. Mm -hmm. Uh, having a mental illness uh, is is pretty prevalent. It, it's pretty common, and and if people do not understand, people who are charged with uh, protecting the public uh, are not able to identify when a when a guy's in a mental uh, crisis. Uh, it it leads to a bad situation. Uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and we talked early off camera about PTSD. I've been diagnosed as PTSD. Didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Didn't know it for years. Uh, does that make me uh, a bad person? Does that make me a person that's uncontrollable? Does that make me a person that warrants being shot down in the street? <clears throat> No, it doesn't. But if if we don't identify those uh, those situations by training, by having mental health professionals, you know, there's talk about reforming the police all over the country, and and some of it is about having a social worker do some of the work that the police now, because police officers are basically social workers. Yeah. They they they're responding. To situations that they're not equipped to handle right so training I, I believe is the most critical part if a police agency is going to survive because we're on the verge of being in a police state now you think about that a police state mm -hmm. it's us against them mm -hmm. if you're not wearing the blue or the badge you're against me and and until we train police officers to be a part of the community and not a part from the community, this thing is gonna continue to flow mm -hmm. and become almost in a police state. And you know, Terry, can mm -hmm. I? You know, Terry, when that occurred in this country, when these kids started coming from Vietnam. Vietnam, that's right. Yes. That's right. That's when it started occurring. But look, training, in eval it, it all starts from the beginning. Once we quit doing the evaluation, the psychological evaluation right. to become a police officer, once we lowered the standards to allow us to get massive numbers of people in, that's when the problem really, really and truly blossomed. Mm -hmm. You know, but training, in the area of training, what's the first thing they tell you in training? Deflate the situation. Right. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing they teach you to do? deflate hostile situations. And you know what's the first thing that the public tells us 
that happens in, a, in many of these instances is that it started escalated. Yeah. It began from... No, it started... Already high. high. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what they tell us. So now that we're talking about these situations, perhaps one of the most um, disturbing for uh, civilians and people to see uh, incidents of police interacting is a takedown. And these things do happen. They have to happen because you have some people who do not um, uh, comply. And so uh, people uh, pull out their phones. They're quick to video these things. And it happens. But oftentimes a takedown is not what you think it is, right? Right. Is that how it Never works? Is. You know, the one thing, I'm sorry. Mm, go ahead. The one thing, the one most important thing in society is this. They miss that part. They see the reaction. You see, they may have missed the fact that Tony spat on me mm -hmm. or even hit me, but they see me reacting to Tony. So that's, that's the part they catch. Now, you, you got to put together, well, what did Tony do? Why did I do that? I reacted for a reason. So common sense plays a big role in this also. Right. You gotta have common sense. You can have all the training in the world. If you don't have common sense to go along with it, it's not going to work. I don't care how you put it together, common sense play one of the biggest roles and you got to play a role in your own mind when, as you're riding around in that police car, you gotta go through some different little scenarios in your mind. Mm -hmm. And when you get the call, while you going over there, whether it's with siren or not, in your mind, you got to start, well, supposing this happened, supposing that happened. So you got to be prepared. So when you get on the scene, whatever you see, you got you to already have a plan in mind as to how you're going to handle it. But you know, God, it also go back to training. We were talking in the lobby a while ago, you know, uh, these takedowns, you're talking about these takedown mm -hmm. situations. There's a tool, and there's, there, there are methods of taking down people that, that deflate the situation and take away the power from the aggressor. And that could be physical power, right? Yes, yeah, physical. And, and look. So when physical? Yeah. Takedowns, I've never seen a beautiful or a gentle takedown. No. Takedowns never are not one. gentle. They're not beautiful. Takedowns are sudden. Mm. Sometimes they're needed. Sometimes they're brought on by the aggressor, which is not the person doing the taking down. Yeah. It's like Gob said, you're catching the reaction, the reaction, but what about the action? I worked in a mental facility when Dr. Tyler was killed. We initiated the plan at, Dr. at Tyler Mental Health mm -hmm. seven days after he was killed. I worked there for some eight years. I learned a lot of training dealing with mental patients, and that training there was put into law enforcement in the early 90s right after Tyler, Joseph Tyler was killed. Law enforcement has been trained of dealing with mental health. They have the tools. They have the tools to combat it. But at the same time, it's a two-way street because you have families that notice this person has not been on their meds for maybe three weeks. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden now they can't control them. Well, now they call a unit out there to control them or take them into custody mm -hmm. and they want it to be an easy takedown. That's right. Can't be an easy takedown. Not always. It has to be a two-way street. You as a family member that's close to him, you notice they're not on their medication. It's going on four days, five days. It's your job to notify either medical staff or law enforcement to help you to get them back on their meds, get them to a facility. But Don't we, wait but, three but, weeks. But, yeah. Don't wait two weeks. Let me, let me break this down for the audience because I'm, I'm acting as the public mm -hmm. for you guys. So 
when they're looking at these situations, whether it is a mental patient, whether the person is not a mental patient, it is a takedown. It ha it's, it's necessary because this person is being non-compliant, whether it's because of their mental state or, or whatever it is. Um, and so when a person sees an officer striking uh, someone in a takedown, they think, you know, typically it's, oh, it's a horrible beating. Look what I'm looking at. A but a trained person, military, police officers, law enforcement, it's, it's strategic. Right. Oftentimes, but I, but I, right? But I think I'm asking. I think the public outrage is not about the takedown. It's about the blows. Right. Well, that's it's what about the sticks. That's what I'm referring that's not to. A takedown. Right. But wait, right. That's, that's what I'm referring to. Right. But wait, once you once you have have contained a person and the threat Correct. is because the law simply says you can use as much force as necessary, necessary. Right. to affect the arrest. Right. The, I think the outrage is not the the you know body slam so much as it is I see some punches. Right. Well, it's the whole process. It's, it's called it is the process itself is called a takedown. My world, the takedown is once you've got the person, you, you use a maneuver to take them or to handcuff them okay. or to contain them or restrain them. Mm -hmm. After that, it's, it's subjective because uh, is the blows necessary? Is it, are you mad because you skin your That's knee? Right. Well, when did are the you blow mad because the guy got a licking on you? And then now you got him handcuffed. But is the question, when did the blow come? During the take, you see, that's what I'm talking well, about. See, but so mo in most cases, though, yes. in most cases, people don't see the initial contact. They see my reaction. They, they'll see me taking him down. They don't see the fact that this guy might have hit me in the groins or, or spat in my face, talked about my mama or whatever. They don't, and it's not a reason you're supposed to be under control, but action beat reaction. So once the action happened, they see the reaction. It's like in football. Come on, let's, let's look at a football scenario. They don't see the fact when this guy was on the ground that he stuck his fingers in his eyes. Yeah. But when he gets up, they see this guy kicking him. Mm -hmm. That's the, you understand what I'm yes. saying? Yes, And that's part of the problem. But now, like Terry said, and I'm going to let you go, Mr. Lando. Mm -hmm. uh, like Terry said, once you have him subdued, it stops. Right. But it's to that. It's to get them subdued. Well, well, right. Is but what the is what I'm asking about. I think, I think what the public is outraged about, <clears throat> especially recently, is usually when there's an encounter with with an African American who has some type of mental mm -hmm. uh, problem, mm -hmm. um, it ends up with him being shot. Right. But there's numerous incidents involving white guys with hatchets, white guys with Absolutely. swords, white guys with, with guns, guns who are mental or who, who their, their family members actually called and say, look, we can't control them. And they end up being arrested. They don't get shot. Mm -hmm. and, and they get, they take them to get a hamburger. And they take you to get a hamburger, <laughs> right? Just like Dylan, Dylan Roof. And I think that's one of the, that's one yeah. of the things that, that, that citizens out there are outraged about mm -hmm. and for some reason we are looked upon as if I'm six feet tall then uh, to the average white cop showing up I'm, I'm six seven you know what I'm saying I'm, mm -hmm. I'm bigger than I am I'm stronger than than I actually am I'm just automatically assumed as a threat I've heard an officer uh, a training officer at one point in Lafayette uh, tell his trainee, you can't talk to the people on the south side like you talk to them on the north side. You have to be aggressive 
mm-hmm. on the north side. Wow. Yeah, always. Okay? And this was a training officer. And his reasoning? Because they don't listen. You, they're going to they're gonna think you're weak and they're going to take advantage of you. And if you start looking at statistics, statistically, 2%, 2% of whites are handcuffed when they encounter uh, officers in America. 4%, I'm sorry, 4% of blacks are handcuffed. But when you start looking at statistics, and this is statistics from the Department of Justice, mm-hmm. and it's a trend from 2019 as far as you can go down, 48 officers killed in the line of duty, 48 officers killed in the line of duty, 15 were killed by blacks, 28 were killed by whites. So you're handcuffed in blacks at a higher percentage when you encounter them, but you're being killed by whites at a higher percent and you're handcuffing them less. And it's because America has basically made you afraid of the white man. I mean, made you afraid of the black man. Exactly. You, you, you just, mm-hmm. uh, you, you're afraid when you show up. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was getting at earlier mm-hmm. about the perceptions mm-hmm. when we have to interact. Exactly. On both sides. And why be afraid of, I mean, if white men are killing cops at a higher rate mm-hmm. than black men, why are you taking more precautions with the black man than you are the white man, and maybe that's why you're getting shot by the white man, because you're not taking the precautions that you should be taking with him because of his skin color. But look, look, I'm old time, y'all. I go back (laughs) to the old days. We had had tools that helped us, you know, we had things that helped us in those takedowns. You know, with this little stick right here, I could take you down in a second. I could take you down from the front, you know, if you're not really hostile, I could take you down from the back if you're really hostile. And if you're really hostile, I could put it between your leg and grab you by your collar and walk you anywhere I want to walk. But you. the problem with the old days was they had to be black in order for you to do that. No, 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 no. They taught everybody to do it. Everybody. They taught you to do it, but did they allow you to do it? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Look, whenever we went on these calls by white people who were mental and had problems, we use all of those techniques. We would put it between that, mm-hmm. in that arm and that back and lift them up. You know, we'd put it between that leg and control them. You know, we would, there were, there, were, there were all kinds of things that we did. You know, and I'm saying that in the case of George Floyd, let's go back to George Floyd mm-hmm. and Trevon Martin. Once the guy was down, if he was hostile, if he continued to be hostile, in the small of his back, you give him command, put those hands behind your back so the officer can put, you can't move. You can't move. You cannot move if I put this in the small of your back, okay? And if, you, if you're not hostile, if you're a mental patient and I don't want to hurt you, you know, but you have to be, it's necessary to take you down, you go in the front of him and gently put him down. Pull it up and put him down. If you're hostile, if you're really hostile, I take you down from the back and you go down like a ton of bricks. Yeah, Tony, but you see now, like you said, we old school and that's true what he's saying. But listen to this. These days you have all kind of mechanical devices that you, you push a right. button and it do you something. The incident of the black guy that got killed on the Evangeline Thruway. Now you got six or seven police officers and like Anthony said, I didn't see one of them with a nightstick. And all they had to, with seven police officers around this guy, you mean to tell me if they had nightsticks and carrying the way they were supposed to, this was going to de-escalate everything there was. 
Didn't all y'all look at me? Mm -hmm. Did y'all, did I get everybody's attention? Yes, you did. I but nobody had a nightstick. But the, the other thing, Rob, I looked at that incident and I look at all those incidents all over the country. Where was the supervision? Where was the sergeant? Was there a sergeant on that incident? I asked the officers. They said, no, he never showed up. Where was the lieutenant, the field commander, when there's a crisis? Where was the lieutenant? He never showed up. And, and, and there should have been one there because the crisis had gone on a long time. Right, so, right. At least the sergeant should have been there. So we're now going to move to where do we go from here? What are some solutions uh, that you guys can talk, can talk about as we uh, close up? Uh, and I'll allow each of you a chance to respond to that. What are some of the solutions? And if we can throw in the... Um, history of uh, officers and uh, I mean, I'm sorry not the history rehiring of officers who may have had issues and they know how to keep it quiet and they end up at another department in another city somewhere else um, this all speaks to the training and and everything uh, well, just they, they who is you know who is on the force we're gonna start with Andres they have no reason the solution. to keep it quiet um, I don't know I don't know what the solution is because I've worked with guys and they get out of law enforcement and you go on Facebook and they calling people niggas on Facebook and you thinking to yourself, this guy was a cop for, for 15 years. Wow. And now he's no longer a cop by choice. He didn't get fired. He just went into a different career. And now he's saying derogatory comments about African-Americans. And I'm thinking to myself, so what kind of did what kind of treatment did you give? the black dude on the traffic stop or on the domestic, were you the type to say everybody going to jail? Mm -hmm. Instead of doing an investigation and figuring out, well, maybe the guy doesn't, doesn't deserve to go to jail, maybe this individual, you know, it, you, you, you pretty much minimize uh, our, I don't know, just human state of being. You don't even look at them as human. Um, and you just, you handle it like that. I mean, I've, I've seen incidents where the dog is treated better than the, yes. the, the people on the scene. And it's not an unknown plight of, of African-Americans in this country. So I don't know how so. you fix it, uh, Darla, because I just think it starts from before home. And when you go and you sit down in these interviews before you get, before you get hired, a racist don't sit down in the interview and say he racist, and he did this in high school, and he did this in middle school, and this how he felt about he don't, they don't do that. Not until they're comfortable in the police department and he see that, well, I got other guys on the department that feel the same way I feel. Then they, they form their little cliques and that's how, you know, it's, that's how it's, it starts to crumble that from speaks the top. To so the, I don't know how you saw it. That speaks to the speak out, you know, say something, see something, say something. Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of solutions and, and, and certainly uh, nothing that I've been able to come up with tell the, mm -hmm. the, the picture of a man's heart. Uh, but I think pre-employment, Tony talked about the psychological evaluations. Those evaluations done right can pick up a lot of the biases and the personal characteristic of a person. Well, isn't that the point of an interview? Well, <laughs> no, 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 evaluation. Evaluate, well, the evaluation. Psychological. But I mean, when you're hire, in the hiring process. In the hiring process. If right. That, if you do a good psychological evaluation, and the, and the evaluation does not tell you don't hire Tony, it tells you what his tendencies are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It tells you if he's prone <coughs> to lie on the witness stand. It tells you if he's prone to be biased 
uh, towards gender or ethnic, it tells you a lot. Uh, it tells you about his discipline. It, it, but it, it tells you many, many things. We, we talked about some of the things for the last couple of sessions. I was, I've evolved in a lot of things that I believed in or didn't believe in uh, when I was a police officer and a police administrator. These police shootings, uh, I don't think we're ever going to get the confidence and the trust of the public until we come up with some type of citizen <coughs> review board. Yes. Not only for shootings, but for disciplinary actions, because the public today believes that the police can't police themselves. They never was able. I, 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 just, I just strongly believe now, if we want the trust, if law enforcement want the trust and the confidence of the people that they chose to serve, we have to come up with some type of a citizen review board that can look at all disciplinary actions and, and make it universal across the board and track police officers' behavior. Uh, don't let them resign in lieu of. Uh, America has become lazy in many instances, and we don't want to do the work uh, of documenting. And, and uh, if a guy's going to appeal a disciplinary action, let him appeal it. Let the facts come out. <coughs> But you can't tuck your tail and run every time a guy says he's going to go get a lawyer or he's going to challenge. Um, we have to have a, a, a clear set of eyes to look at the police agency and do an evaluation of their behavior. And uh, that's just some of the things that right off of training, um, post and pre and, and pre and post psychological both, pre. both, yeah. because uh, I've seen some things, and, and all of us have seen some things that are going to be with us for the rest of our lives. I think all of us are probably suffering some <coughs> from some type of, um, I don't know what you call it, uh, when you see things that that are just a waste of life. Trauma. Mental impact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all PTSD. seen things. PTSD. Mm -hmm. both, yeah. <laughs> I, I admit, I mean. I was told that law enforcement made mine worse. Yeah. Yeah. From going, to, from going to Desert Storm. Yeah. Then I got into law enforcement and the things that I saw in law enforcement made mine worse. Yeah. Well, let me tell y'all a story about one. We had a guy one time, uh, you know who I'm talking about. He came on the police, he went through the pre-psychological. They said, we recommend that you don't hire this guy. He has a discipline power problem. He don't respect authority and several other things okay so i was on the review board and i was the only one who read the psychological report and i said don't hire the guy well lo and behold i become his supervisor and he chased a guy down from church's chicken on evangeline throughway he chased this guy and after the guy got cornered then the guy started to kind of defend himself and he shot him well this guy had a complete mental breakdown the chief wouldn't even talk to him and nobody would talk to him and I was just a sergeant. He came to me and he said, you know, sergeant, what am I going to do? You know, I, I have this problem. I have. So I went to, to, to the pastor of the First Baptist Church and I said, this guy have a problem. You know, he needs some help. Can you help him? He took him in. Eventually, we got the guy off the police department. You know, but everything this woman said that he would have a discipline problem, mm -hmm. th that we would have a 
discipline problems. He wouldn't respect authority. And he wouldn't do a lot of other things. Now, there's a mechanism to catch these people. It's called the probationary period. You, you put them with a, with a trained officer, and that trained officer is supposed to write an evaluation of his conduct, his demeanor, and everything mm -hmm. for the first six months. And if, it, if it's not satisfactory during the first six months, you extend it another six months to give him another chance and to look for other things. But at the well, end of that, but at the end of that one year, okay. you have to make a decision whether you're going to make him permanent or not. And and I used that when I was the captain and when I was the commander. Well, I, and, it, I and it was very I, I successful. I don't think a personal status is an excuse not to do the right thing by an agent, a guy. No, but it tell if, you about the guy. I don't care if he got 29 and a half years to retire. Mm -hmm. If he screws up on day 28, you should mm -hmm. fire him and not let him retire. No, no, I'm not saying yeah. that. Right. I'm not saying that yeah. you. Should, should, should never fight them. Yeah. You know, that's why we got suspensions, and that's why we have... So he's talking about charges. using the process with, with, right. the, with the probationary Look, peers. Right. So we're running out of time, and Mr. Navarro. Mr. Navarro, yeah, we're running out of time, love. Work if we we got to let him talk. We got to let him talk, and Mr. Gobb, close... That was, yeah. that, those were your closing thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, Terry kind of hit it on the head. I worked in internal affairs for five and a half years, and in internal affairs, we basically did the hiring with HR. We did the firing on the, on the, on the tail end. Um, we didn't use uh, voice stress analysis. We actually had our people uh, go to psychiatrists, talk to them physically, like exactly. Terry said. Having them there, seeing the reaction, seeing their body emotions plays a big part. And it does that evaluation that says whether to hire them or not just gives strengths and weaknesses. Uh, also, hiring process. Social media is a big thing today. Before you hire someone, I know here at the Sheriff's Office, we went through social media. We looked at social media, see who you were connected with, who were your friends, what you said on social media, because what you say is what you are sometimes. You know, exactly. Who, who you associate yourself with is basically sometimes what you become. So we did very in-depth uh, research before hiring people, because we didn't come, it wasn't a small department. I mean, we were, at the time I was in internal affairs, it was between eight, 900 employees. So you had applications coming in every day. We were doing, two to four polygraphs per day with two polygraphers there. So we were hiring. And that meant you had to go through the process as an investigator and really get into their application because you didn't want to waste that money with a, doing a polygraph when you know from the beginning, from the psychological, they're not qualified, mm -hmm. okay? Talking about the officers that have history, uh, we use a program called IA Pro. I protract that officer's progress from day, day one till retirement. If that officer had a tendency to be aggressive or late for work or races or traffic stops only on certain cultures, it was indicated, okay? Now, if we terminated that person, if an agency called and said, look, that person is interested in coming to our department, we wouldn't give them anything. Come to our office and we'll let you look at the folder. We're not going to give you anything. As long as they gave authorization for them to talk to us, we're going to let you look at the folder. Let you see it for yourself. Now, yeah. if you want to hire them from that point there, you can't say later on in a civil lawsuit that you didn't know the history. You had all the chances to know the history of this person before you hired them. But I think the Louisiana Law Enforcement on Commission, the Commission on Law Enforcement should come up with a database. When a person is terminated or an officer is arrested as an officer, 
If they're terminated post, their post certification should be voided at that point there. In order for them to go to any other department, that department has to send them through post certification to become a law enforcement officer. It will ring a bell with the Louisiana Commission on Law Enforcement. Well, this person was fired six or seven years ago with this agency. Now this department here is trying to hire them and get them post certified again. That's one way to cut it down. Void their post certification once they're terminated or arrested. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay, yes. I'm gonna make yeah. it short, darling. Yeah. It's accountability. Accountability. Mm -hmm. Have the same set of universal rules for everybody, everybody in law enforcement. Don't have a set of rules for a black officer, a Mexican officer, or whatever everybody. nationality. The same set of rules goes for everybody. And like Terry said, if you got one year left to do and you screw up, you go. You yeah. go. But look, can I throw in something right now, please? Uh, yes. <laughs> in the case of Trevon, <laughs> uh, you know, to support everything you all yes. said, in the case of Trevon Martin, mm -hmm. do you know where that officer came from? Morgan City, Thibodeau, Jennings, uh, someplace else, then St. Louis. So he went through several yeah. departments. And each place he was fired. He was fired in Morgan City, he was fired in Thibodeau, he was fired in Jennings, and he was fired in Texas, and still he got on the St. Louis Police Department. Nah. That's wow. about accountability. That's, that's why we, it was so important for us to, to yeah. wrap up and end I on that. I just had to throw that in. <laughs> no, well, we're so glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we want to thank all of our distinguished guests today. It has truly been um, a highlight of my career because I have never uh, interviewed uh, such a group. I've interviewed individually and got you know, ideas, but this is golden to me for our community to hear from, from each and every one of you. Um, Thanks for inviting us. You're so Thank welcome. Thank you so much for inviting us. Again, uh, invitation stays open. If we have other topics and things that we need to address right away, please do not hesitate to let us know. And as for you, Acadiana, continue listening to 10 Talks Acadiana. It is our podcast. We have so many topics and things to share with you. Our community is great, and we want to make it even greater. Thanks so much for joining us. 10 Talks Acadiana. Subscribe wherever podcasts are downloaded. A Star Media production.